So this is a nice time to think about transition. So I want to talk, tonight's talk is about right view in the middle way and how to approach practice from a sitting retreat experience and integrating that into the rest of our lives. And this is a big topic, I think, in, in Dharma practice and an oftentimes misunderstood practice and this idea of a right view. What is the right view? And that already sets us up because if we think there's a right view, there must be a wrong view. And again, this problematic and just the problematic nature of words and concepts and ideas and that semantics are limited. We had that, some discussions about that in the meetings today about some of the stuff that we're doing here. Much of what we're doing here is extremely experiential and some of it's also nonverbal. So we do sometimes hit a brick wall with language a little bit. So when we draw from the ideas of there being a view, really we want to look into the Pali a little bit more, the original language in this word sama. <coughs> sama ditti means right view. Sama doesn't really mean right, it actually means complete. So I think that's actually a better assessment of what the view would be. And that's about seeing things completely, seeing the whole picture, the full picture. And we could associate view, or right view, with uh, perception. So it, it does a number on our, on our perception and this, this aggregate, this, this function of mind that we actually have to deal with to some degree in every moment is the way that we're perceiving things, the way that we perceive our experience. Right? And if we just sit and watch, it's like arising and passing of each moment, the mind kind of frames up. It's like this, and it falls away, but it's like this, and it falls away, but it's like this, and it falls away. And this perception aspect of the mind kind of gives us a quick and dirty sketch of what may or may not be happening right now. It's very unreliable. Right? And so when we kind of get caught into that frame, there's a frame, a way that we're seeing things in every moment, we oftentimes can define ourselves in the world by this little limited tiny frame of my leg hurts a little bit too much and that just means my life is just a mess and a nightmare. Right? We, 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 we ascribe so much meaning and symbolism and, and absolute to a very limited view. Right? And so when we kind of be mindful and we practice this vipassana insight, we start to see all these very limited views. They might be colored with judgment or fear, criticism. And it's a very narrow, narrow snapshot of the full range of what might be available to us in our lives. And usually we associate view with belief. So then we believe that view we believe that perception and we create a sense of an absolute. This, it's like this. Right? I'm like this. It's like this. It's always like this. Right? And that's, that's, a very, that's a very incomplete view that we would say is a wrong view. Or sometimes called Sakaya Ditti, which is self-view. I'm this thing perspective. So we could say in a very real way that the beginning of the practice, really the whole 
of meditative inquiry is just kind of coming to terms with the perceptual mechanism of the mind. And as we train and we kind of work in this way, we, we start to see a more complete view. We're like, oh, well, I had a pretty good sit in the morning. I wasn't so bad. Maybe I'm not such a bad person after all. Maybe I'm just on this retreat. I'm having a hard time. You know, we kind of, it gets more spacious and we start to include more of these things of, of more complexity into the experience. <coughs> and then we start to have more uh, equanimity, which I haven't spoken of too much, but I'll say a few words about equanimity. Dare I say, if there was a goal of practice, I'm not a very goal-oriented teacher, but I, I think we could say in a very real sense that the goal is equanimity. And ironically, mindfulness practices, the Satipatthana, the teachings on the four foundations of mindfulness, which is kind of the current Bible of the Theravadan. Everybody's so excited about Satipatthana. Uh, and it's really great. It's a great application of understanding the foundations of mindfulness. And it arrives in its completion in the fourth foundation around these factors of awakening and that we develop these awakening factors. And the first one, no big surprise, is mindfulness. And when mindfulness is applied and fully developed, it leads to the experience of equanimity. Same is true with Brahma-vihara. The cultivation of the heart, of kindness, compassion, appreciation, when applied and fully developed, leads to the experience of equanimity. So both practices have the same outcome, which is one of the reasons why I like to integrate both of them simultaneously. Kind of like cheating a little bit, actually. I like to do that. (laughs) Double dip. (laughs) And so this equanimity is two things. It's A, it's a view, it's a perspective, it's a way of seeing things. There's There's a wisdom component to equanimity. There's a right view, an appropriate, complete view of equanimity, which does kind of bring us into a little bit of, of an existential paradox to some degree. Because this idea of equanimity as a wisdom, as an understanding, is it, is it acknowledges that there's, a, that there's a sense of paradox, or we could say a sense of polarity in life, that life is a both-and thing. It can't be reduced to just one thing. Life is both, we could say, it's tragic and it's beautiful. There's tragedy, there's beauty, there's joy, there's sorrow, there's pleasure, there's pain, there's gain, there's loss, there's praise, there's blame. There's all these kind of dialectical things that are true, like both things that seem completely opposed to each other happen to both be part of the whole picture. And the mind doesn't like that so much. You know, even just thinking about it, it's like makes my eyes want to go this the opposite way. It's like, whoa, man. Mm-hmm. Both? I don't do both. I do the one thing. What's the one thing? And so when we look at this equanimity term, which isn't a great term because we never use the word equanimity unless we're talking in a Buddhist context. So I wish there was a better term or another term. I've seen a few therapeutic textbooks, actually, that use the word equanimity, and I'm always excited to see it. (laughs) And so the the translation, actually, this word is, is, is there in the middleness, with a hyphen between there in the middleness. And that's where we are. That's where we find ourselves much of the time, is in the middle of 
the middle of the moment that just happened and the middle of the moment that's about to happen. We call it the present, but it's moving pretty quick. It's hard to be in the middle. We might just find ourselves in the middle of a moment of pleasure, a moment of pain. And, and what, what equanimity is trying to do is get us to balance these, to see the both and the balance. So the wisdom component is to just understand in some pragmatic or realistic sense that everything I just said is actually accurate. And then there's the heart component of that. Well, how do we relate to that? How is our equanimity in the relational field? Because what happens is if the equanimity is only supported by wisdom, it can fall into its near enemy, which is indifference or a sense of being detached. So you know what, man? It's all just a big up and down, big just mess. I'm over it, man. I'm just indifferent to all of it. Apathy. I could give two shits about this whole situation. And we get that way in life. We get that kind of dismissive coldness. Uh, Buddhism, Buddhist practitioners and the, this tradition and all traditions really can fall into this trap of sort of being above it all. I'm above it all. I don't really... Kind of a coldness that could be seen or, or sensed as equanimity, but it's not. It's very incomplete. It's half. you got half right. you got 50%. I think that's an F. That's <laughs> 50% not good. So then there's the relational field of, the equanim- of equanimity, the middle way of trying to, to recognize all those things are true, and then seeing that actually there's a whole range of responses that I'm responsible for <coughs> behaving or receiving experience in a particular way. And so then there's the heart of equanimity, which, is, which has the ability to be guided by them to recognize, which is a lot of what we've been doing the last few days, recognizing what's happening, and then trying to begin by meeting that with seeing the view, the perception with a sense of kindness, ease, friendliness, not arguing with reality, not placing demands on experience, on ourselves. Have you noticed you've placed any sort of meditative demands? Arguing with your mind. And then the whole range of that, having compassion for the, for the loss and the tragedy and the uh, sorrow and all of that side of it needs compassion. The equanimity needs to have that also to balance it. Otherwise, we become cold and indifferent. It also needs to have some degree of appreciation and gratitude for the beautiful gain, pleasure, joy, side of things. So I would love to tell you about the one thing, but there is no one thing. And so this is why practice is so hard, because it can't be reduced to a simple, a simple technique. And there we are in this middle. This, do we have the right complete view? Are we seeing things completely? And in every different moment, in each given set of conditions, circumstances, periods in our life, the frame that we need to, to look through is different, is often different. So what are the conditions right now? What am I sitting with right now? What are you dealing with in your life right now? Are you seeing that completely? And are you willing to kind of 
bring the appropriate response to the table in some way. And I also like this word complete because it also carries with it a task kind of component, right? And it applies that something has been done, some effort has been put in. So this idea of I've completed, if, I'm, if I have complete view, I've completed something, I've, I've, uh, I've done some work here, I've, I've kind of completed the understanding of really the Four Noble Truths, we would say. And so right view being the beginning of the fourth noble truth. I don't like talking about the four noble truths so much because I think we get so hung up on the first two. Dukkha, 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 so much dukkha, got to deal with dukkha. And dukkha is not a very complex idea. There is dukkha. Life is hard. Period. For everybody. Period. (laughs) Next. <laughs> yeah, but wait. <laughs> no, that's it, man. That's it's, it's difficult. This whole thing, you know, it's not easy. It's a bumpy ride, and so we have to know that. We have to understand that part of having a cl- complete view is recognizing the reality of that, and not becoming depressed or angry or aggravated about that, but just having to have some degree of understanding and some degree of metta again for that. Yeah, oh boy. I have to be at ease with this dukkha business. And if we can't do that, if we can't do the completely understanding and responding to dukkha in a particular way, then we get to, then we get to play with the second noble truth, which is wanting things to be different. This, this is what is the cause of suffering. Tanha arises, craving, kind of a barbaric term, but that's the one we're stuck with. Wanting things to be different. Wanting other. I want something else. And then searching for the place. Where is the thing? The better thing. <coughs> Abstract mind, thinking mind, creates a better place in about two seconds. And then we reflect back, well, why are you not in that? Why are you here? You could be there. What's wrong with you? You don't like me very much? You'd make me be here when we could be there. There's so many other places we could be. And this is the place you decided for us to be right now. Just sit here and be in pain. And just be kind and you can't even do that very well. (laughs) (laughs) Suffering. pretty ordinary experience. It's not that it's there, it happens. There's a task that we have to understand this kind of life is hard and and come to terms with that so we don't get caught, we don't get pulled, we don't get tricked, we don't get preoccupied into that vortex. It's like that is the craving wheel again. It's just like, oh man. It's there. It's got a lot of momentum. Buddha calls it Kanda Upadana, clinging bundles. It's like this spinning wheel of clinging bundles, just right under your nose at every moment. I want to get one. I want to get one of them. I'm going to grab on and dig in with my hands. I'm going to get to the better place. And so we have to deal with these, both of these ideas. This isn't like dogma. This isn't like, oh, we believe in this, or uh, this is like what Buddhism's about, or 
this is like this is like what we have to deal with in every moment. These these factors, these these aspects of experience are just right there below your nose all the time. So really, the the four the four noble truths. I don't even like that word noble truth. There's a task there. If we're gonna understand things completely and have a right view, we have to kind of, you know, keep an eye on these things. And then if we don't get hooked into the vortex of craving and wanting other and imagining a better place to be and abstract thinking mind, we kind of have presence and ease, which is kind of what we've been trying to cultivate here, a sense of presence and ease, a nibbana, cooling down, right, cooling down. Very ordinary experience, awakened. I'm here, it's okay to be here, I'm present. I'm seeing things completely now. I'm in a little bit of pain, but that's okay. <coughs> I have specific, difficult emotion, painful memories, thinking mind, but eh. you know, there's like the, the right view just arises out of those, out of that coolness. Nibbana means to cool down. I'm not for for certain, but I'm. Well, I've been told that nibbana is actually an ancient Indian term, a cooking term, and it means to remove from the flame. Sometimes called the three poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion, but actually, uh, it's it's actually they're not really poisons. That comes later in the later traditions, but in early Buddhism, they're called the three fires. So we remove the hot stove from the hot flames of wanting and not wanting and delusion and we just kind of go over here and we cool down a little bit we get our senses about us and that moment happens and we kind of cultivate that moment right? and we start to have this right view middle way wake up that's it whole religion designed on those basic ideas right? and you've had this probably if we added them all up I wish we could do the math I bet there's been thousands of those in the last two days happening right here in this room. But we sometimes overlook that or we think that this awakened experience is supposed to be way better or way different or way more privileged than, than what I just described. But I don't really think that's the case. Right. So we kind of, once the right view is here, then we have all these possibilities and these things that we can, options, not black and white. Not this or that, but possibilities. And so what happens is we do, we, be, we become polarized by these, these, these wide range of dichotomies, these, the sorrow and the joy. And we sometimes forget to see that actually it's been the things in our lives that have been the hardest, the experiences in our life where we've had the most amount of suffering that actually might be the reason why we get the opportunity to practice in this way. Which is very hard for the mind to accept. I get tired of talking about it sometimes because it's just been my... my story has unfolded in this way. But these... Um, you know, like if I, if I do a timeline or I look at uh, all the, the big suffering moments of my life, the, the most traumatic events of loss or 
something where things really got difficult. For me, I have this really amazing Dharma karma. Usually what arises out of every one of those is some sort of Dharmic intervention. And so when I did a whole bunch of timeline and a whole bunch of trauma therapy and working with kind of things like EMDR and kind of trying to get the system to, to look at things from a different perspective, actually it turned out that I, had, I actually felt a tremendous sense of gratitude for all of the really, really <coughs> difficult things that I ever went through because they were immediately followed by something that provided my life with a tremendous amount of meaning and purpose. So there you have the sorrow and the joy, the compassion and the appreciation. Mm-hmm. Having compassion and appreciation for the same event. It's like the mind gets too much. It's like, no, man, it's one or the other, dude. Like, you can't be happy and uh, upset about that at the same time. It's like, well, actually, it turns out you can. It's actually that complex, isn't it? And so when we look back, a lot of people that I meet on the, on the path is... You meet a lot of people who have been through some really, really difficult and horrific shit. You know? And that's actually kind of a good thing. Because if we trace it back, I know that for me, uh, there is this thing I like to call the wisdom of dissatisfaction. And I was pretty dissatisfied with life and existence and experience at a fairly young age because my sister was killed in a car accident when I was 11. And my whole world got shattered. I was, you know, 11-year-old kid, watching Star Wars, eating popsicles, you know, doing that, riding my bike, making fires in the woods, worshipping my older sister, early 80s, BCN rock station in Boston, all, the, all of that. And then, you know, it was like me and my sister were arguing over what we were going to watch on cable, and then she was dead the next day, and then I was like back at school on Monday. Mm. You know, it's just like, really? This is like, what the fuck is this? Of course, my parents didn't have any resources. They had their own loss and trauma in that, and the guidance counselor at school was not particularly helpful. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, from that, I mean, that that changed everything for me, and I, 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 had a tremendous sense of there's something, there's something wrong about life. There's something not right here. And you know, that, that can go a lot of different ways for us. Right. And so, but that's actually really good, I think, because it, it, it makes us ask more types of questions. So for me, I, I think at that point, it, it awoke some kind of seeking or some kind of like, wait a minute, like, People actually, nobody actually has any idea what's going on here. Like there's this whole field of sadness and loss lurking below the surface that I, at 11 years old, am painfully aware of. And walking through the world, walking through the hallways at school, going through my teen years and being like, is anybody, is anybody going to acknowledge this? It's like, nope. So I did what everybody else did and drank and smoked weed and took a bunch of acid and tried to medicate that and said, well, I guess no one seems to care. Let's just see if we can shut that down. And then, you know, seven years later, after going through another tragic accident and just feeling tired of it all, meeting a Dharma teacher and getting this really, of course, the traumatic event followed immediately by this kind of Dharmic intervention, who said, yeah, totally. Yep. That's really a thing that's real. 
And actually, in actually, to some degree, you're lucky that you can see that now because you're not going to get caught in the dominant paradigm of the world. You know, the craving for pleasure, the got to get to the place, go to the place, get to the place. And I didn't even kind of chase that. Never went to college, never cared about getting a good job. Like, I was immediately against all that. I, I kind of overreacted, we could say. <laughs> right? I, I, didn't, I didn't have a middle way, actually. It took me, I went from one extreme to another. It took me a long time to get back to some degree of center. Right? So getting blown out and dissatisfaction and being like, well, if it's all just pain and loss and disappointment, then that's just like, whoo! You know, let's just do drugs and drink and party and kind of burn it down. But I did both, actually, for years. For 10 years, I sat Vipassana retreats in the summer for 10 days and did and drank and used and played, played in bands. And I had this very conflicting sense of purpose. But I'm really grateful that I had those early experiences because... It put me in a different trajectory. I was like, oh, okay, well, if this is all... And seeing my friends and other people get caught up in chasing after the world, chasing after the world. I went chasing after annihilation, which is not great either. <laughs> but you probably can see how you've been maybe caught up in both of those. Right? And so how, how do we kind of come back into, into kind of a middle experience? And I think this is really kind of, I said this last night, and I want to revisit it some. I think this is exactly kind of what the Buddha went through, as he went through this kind of personal understanding, in understanding there's this undercurrent, there's this kind of dukkha, dissatisfaction, there's, there's this suffering that everybody seems to be in denial about. The term they use was ignorance, which I think is, a fairly accurate term, but a little bit too derogatory. I think we think of that word in that way. But I think it's really denial. And uh, uh, people, I think he noticed and he recognized, and I think that we all notice and recognize and participate to some degree in this kind of pretending. It's like really, suffering really is the pink elephant in the room, isn't it? It's like, what? Everything's fine. How are you? Oh, I'm great. I'm fine. Nothing, nothing unpleasant in my life. Right? We kind of all play that social norm. And kind of in that thing I read that Bhikkhu Bodhi said the first night that we, we give in to these prevailing social norms because nobody wants to look at that. Until we start to get some sort of dharmic sensibility and we start to see, wait a minute, other people are talking about this as a there's a whole way of life and a whole practice associated with this. And when we think about, I like to think about what might have been the conditioning that the Buddha went through where he recognized, again, well, I wonder if there's anything you can do about that. That's kind of the, I think the initial question we all have is we recognize that, that life has, has a certain undertone to it that's maybe a little bit dark or a little bit sullen or poignant. Either we kind of avoid it and distract ourselves from it, or we might become interested 
and motivated and saying, gee, I wonder if there's something I can do about that. What can be done about that? And then we find ourselves kind of in the, we think more into a middle kind of approach to see what can be done. And when we think about the, the Buddha's world and his family and his culture, what might have influenced him is the idea that this, uh, his family were called the Sakyans, and that meant sun worshiper, so they would have worshipped the sun. And so he grew up in a time and a place where there was a lot of agriculture, so that would have been the thriving, uh, allowed his family to have abundance and sustenance, was there was a lot of agriculture, which meant there was a lot of food, which meant it was kind of the beginning of things like commerce and trade, and probably even later in his life, the beginning of things like money and banking. But he would have been educated, or he would have been conditioned in this way to recognize that the sun provided um, two things. One, light. So we have this Buddhist idea of compassion and wisdom, wisdom and compassion, and that the light of the sun provides a sense of, of seeing, of being able to see, of being able to, to wake up, of, of clarity. It also provides warmth, which would be a sense of compassion, a sense of caring and being, being cared for. He also would have been very aware of things like seed and fruit. So because he grew up in an agricultural climate and a time and a place, he would have been able to see, well, if you take a seed, which is not really... I mean, if you had a, a seed and then like a delicious mango, well, you would probably want the mango, not the seed, right? So, but he would have known very clearly that, that when placed in the proper soil and given the proper conditions, that, that if it was given care and, uh, and attention and this cultivation, then eventually that idea or that seed would turn into something like fruit. And so perhaps he maybe realized that if you could do that in the external world, if that's, if that's true in the external natural world, I wonder if that's also true in the internal world. I wonder if that's true in my psychological, emotional sense of well-being. And so this word cultivation, not meditation, that came much later, that came much more from the English language. And he used that word bhavana, cultivation. He said, this is a practice of cultivation. And so when we start to think about a process that takes us from something like an idea, like we could say that like metta is a seed, right? And it starts off that way. I know that many of you in the interviews had some really great questions about that. It's like, where is the, where's the metta fruit? I got the metta seed. I don't like it so much. It's hard as a rock in my shoe. But that's the beginning. Sometimes we could say that the, that the path is, begins with right view and actually ends with right view. So right view can actually be a perspective and a type of, more like a seed, and it can also be a fruit. And so we have to really kind of, if we think about our psychology and our practice and the way that we live as this uh, constant cultivation, then right view, one of the things that can happen is that as long as we know that we're headed in the right way, we're headed in the right direction, then we're going to get to our destination. 
So there's just some, there's actually some trust and some, some faith that can be experienced just in that kind of idea right there. It's like I was, I recently moved to Colorado. I'm obsessed with cultivation and agriculture right now, which is probably why I'm talking about this stuff. But we have this piece of land up on this mesa in Colorado. I have seven acres. And it's mostly just barren. And um, one day I was with my dad and we were going to get... He and, him and my mom had planted some globe willow trees in their yard because they don't have many trees out there. And I was like, oh my... And, I, and I, it's not that... Oh, you're going to probably laugh at me when I say this, but I was like, you can like plant trees in your yard. <laughs> <laughs> and I got my dad, and my dad, my dad loves to go anywhere in the truck, so you, my dad's like a dog, you know? It's like, put a, he's always looking for a reason to get in the car and drive somewhere because he's so bored. <laughs> so I was like, Dad, let's get some trees. And he's like, yeah, let's go, let's go. And, and I'm, I go to this like nursery, so I've never been to a tree nursery in my life. And, uh, I'm, and, I'm, and the lady thinks I'm out of my mind because I'm like, I'm like asking questions about trees. And it turns out the globe willow trees I wanted to get and the cottonwood trees I wanted, they were like $29. I'm like, I can buy a tree for $29? <laughs> Fucking blowing my mind. And the lady's like, yeah, people do this all the time. <laughs> Like, I think something's wrong with your son. My dad's like, yeah, totally something wrong with my son. So we load up a bunch of trees and I go home and dig the hole and water them and plant them. And I'm just like, I'm like, oh man, I really hope they grow. And my dad's like, they're going to grow, you dumbass. You just have to water them. I'm just like, really, like, I hope they make it. My $29 tree is going to be this huge shade tree. So I'm, I've been obsessed with this idea because I feel very strongly that the practice is exactly the same as the same analogy. Right. And then if we go back to the theme of, of this beauty and tragedy or looking at uh, how do we, what kind of soil do we want to plant our seeds in? You know, you look at the idea, what kind of soil does seeds grow in? Shit, stinky, nasty, gnarly. Like, we got, I had to get bags of stuff to plant the trees in, and it was, like, totally gross. It wasn't like Malibu beach sand. We like Malibu beach sand. So nice. But nothing grows in that stuff. Nothing at all. Nothing will grow in that. So there's this really kind of interesting paradox that we can find that um, everything we want out of our life, all the meaning and purpose and everything that, everything that ultimately will matter for us, not always, but I think we find that what matters for us and what allows us to arrive into an experience where we have meaning and purpose is, is all this nasty soil that we have acquired. Right? And so we come on these retreats and we we get both, right? You get these and, and I hear in the interviews and the meetings all the time, it's like you get both, man. You know, so we want to make sure we're planting the right seeds in the right kind of soil and paying attention to those seeds and cultivating those seeds. And we're not just trying to grow a one seed, that's the thing, right? We have to there's, there's the seed of awareness. We have to cultivate that sati bhavana, 
be the, be the ability to recognize what it is that's coming up, that's arising. And we, I heard it many times today. And a lot of times you, rec- you recognize all this great soil arising in your mind, the bad memories and the painful body experience and these nasty emotional undertones. Like, you, you should be so happy. Like, oh, look at all this killer fertilizer just arising <laughs> in my experience. <laughs> it's like, where's the Malibu beet sand? And so we have that recognition. We can, we can do that. That's part of practice. But that's not it. We have these other kind of, you know, there's just generosity. We talked about that today. Generosity, kindness, compassion, appreciation, equanimity, concentration. There's a whole wide range <coughs> of seeds that need to be kind of cultivated. And so this happens slowly over a period of time. And it only happens if they are continued to be cared for and taken care of. This isn't just a cognitive understanding game. It's like getting a bag of seeds and putting them on the shelf somewhere next to your books on Buddhism. (laughs) You're like, oh yeah, I'm into all that. It's totally what I'm into. That's like my thing. (laughs) Really? I'm a Buddhist. I got my seeds up on the shelf with my dusty ass books. I mean, I'm not going to do any of that stuff, but I'm totally into it. We see a lot of that in, 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 in a wide range of ways. We kind of see a lot of that in our lives. And then there's this one sutta that the Buddha talks about called irrigating the field, back to the theme of agriculture. And he paints this really kind of somewhat morbid and poignant picture of what happens for people when they wake up to dharma, or they wake up to this experience. And he, he describes waking up sometimes as we have woken up from a dream, a dream state of sort of abundance and uh, delusion and kind of the pleasure realm and all this imagination and kind of the way things could be better and then we wake up to this what he calls a barren wasteland sometimes I feel that way when I walk out the mesas in Colorado it's just like these barren wastelands it's just raw earth, it's got a lot of potential you can grow $29 trees I'm told (laughs) if you water them but he talks about that, that we, we kind of arrive into this barren wasteland and two things can happen. Is one, we can become totally upset and aggravated, disappointed, depressed, and just say, well, I just wanna, I'm not willing to cultivate this barren wasteland. I just want to go back to sleep. Or we have this experience of this term he uses called Samvega, which means spiritual urgency or sometimes described as spiritual courage where we don't get bummed out by this barren wasteland. We see it as this, oh wow, look at all this raw land, all this potential. And he says that kind of what happens is that at this point in time, he talks about a stream, entering a stream. 
And a lot of times stream entry, this word sotopana, uh, unfortunately I think it gets caught often as a sort of a meditative state. In jhana practice, absorption practices, people talk about having these really like intense meditative experiences, which is just these temporary experiences where they say, oh, I had a stream entry experience. And that's talked about somewhat in the early teachings, but actually the way that the Buddha mostly talks about the stream is he, he associates it with the Eightfold Path. And he says, one who has entered the stream has entered this path, this process, has seen right view, completely seeing the issue at hand, the complexity of human experience, the limitations, what we have agency over, what we don't have agency over, what is the work that needs to be done, clearly laid out in front of us. They enter into kind of this stream, and this stream, Eightfold Path, is kind of the... Uh, the sustenance or the experience that we use to, to irrigate the field of our life. That's the analogy that he uses. How do we irrigate the field of our own lives through developing these factors, these awakening factors and these, this cultivation of the Eightfold Path. And so that's eight things, not one thing. Now we're in eight. It's a lot. So I don't have time to do the eight things, so I'll do the three things. That's what I love about Buddhism and Dharma practice. How many do you want? We have every list you can think of, except for we don't have a list of one, as far as I know. Sorry, folks, I know you want the one thing. And it's this right view begins by kind of recognizing everything I just said to some degree. And then we have to kind of cultivate this whole lifestyle so we have this way of using practice or really using dharma as a map, as a (coughs) right view gives us the direction to head in, right view understands intentionality that we have to actually do a whole bunch of this stuff. It's not just going to happen because we have the the pretty books and all the right seeds on the shelf that we can show our friends when they come over, feel good about ourselves. And then that this is also a huge aspect of that is the ethical component, for lack of a better word. Integrity, having integrity, living with integrity with our speech, our actions, our livelihood. And I think for us, really, I, it's funny, I feel, I think it's interesting. Sometimes when, once in a while if I'm trying to write a talk or I'm thinking about Dharma talks, I will sometimes do like a search in Dharma seat just to see like how many talks there are on any particular topic. And I don't, we don't talk about right livelihood very much. And I don't know about you, but isn't your life mostly dictated by your job or lack thereof? Right. I find that to be very interesting, and a lot of our self is tied into that. So we have these kind of factors of, of being, having integrity with our words and our actions and the way that we make money and our relationship to money, which is very challenging. And then the meditation practices of effort, mindfulness, and concentration. So that's a lot of a lot of things to consider. But we also have to have some respect or some acknowledgement that part of the complete view or the seeing things completely is understanding that Dharma practice is a kind of objective map. Right? We're all using the same map. We're all trying to cultivate the same qualities through language, through 
dharma through the way that I can offer these in a way that hopefully makes sense to you. And then we have to deal with our own territory. You have to deal with individually, we have to deal with our own subjective wastelands. And this idea of map and territory is really challenging, I think, because when we sit, one of the things that happens on these retreats, I think that's so transformative, is we just become very, very familiar with our own territory, our own internal, what is your internal landscape like? So before we even navigate or cultivate or begin to work with trying to irrigate a field or cultivate this wasteland, we kind of have to walk around for a while and take a look at what it's like in here. And then immediately we're confronted right back to this very idea of the both and. It's like, oh, there's a lot in here. There's a lot of joy in here. There's a lot of sorrow in here. There's a lot of loss in here. There's a lot of aggravation in here. There's a lot of anger in here. There's a lot of fear in here. There's a lot of hope in here. There's a lot of gratitude in here. It's all in here. It really is. It's all there. But nobody but you can actually sort that out or navigate that or kind of irrigate your own field. And so this is really where we kind of start to have to do the work. And so looking at the meditation factors that we've been working with. I haven't said a whole lot about effort, but I don't know if you've noticed how, how this takes a lot of effort. <clears throat> right effort, complete effort, the task aspect of effort. It's actually much easier to fall asleep. I don't know about you, but I much enjoy going to sleep at night than I do waking up in the morning. Most of the time. You want to just take a big sleepy nap and the delusion and the greed. Waking up is like, ugh. <laughs> I got to get up. I got to do all kinds of shit today. That analogy of waking up. It's very similar to that. To, to just the everyday experience of having to get up. Does anybody dislike getting up in the morning? Exactly. Waking up is... Ugh. The drag. So this effort, mindfulness. And this mindfulness, again, I think is oftentimes given so much privilege in terms of being kind of the, the one thing. Like So if we look at our culture and sort of the way Dharma has infiltrated our culture, if you look at the eight factors of the Eightfold Path, the one that we seem to be most caught up on is mindfulness. And mindfulness, this Mindful Magazine. I don't think they saw that coming. I bet you if you ask Joseph Goldstein in the late 70s, do you think there'll ever be like a magazine at Whole Foods called Mindful? He probably would have totally laughed. No way. It's never going to happen. But we have it. And it's so great because I, I, I don't want to speak in any sort of derogatory way about mindfulness because it's very, very important, but it's really, all it really does is get you in the room. You know? It just, whoa, it just gives you the ability to see. It gives you the ability to actually take a a, a quick peek at right view and go, okay, am I sure I want to do this? 
it's so important and so essential and totally so not enough. Mm-hmm. And you've seen that. I'm sure you've seen that. All right, so we have to kind of start to um, appreciate the complexity. And one thing I've noticed in my, in my uh, not so much my Dharma practice, but as much as my, more of my therapeutic work and a lot of the experiential therapeutic work, is that one thing that I find is a both and about practice is mindfulness practice, Dharma practice. The thing about it that's so rich is that it gives you the ability to navigate complexity. And the thing about it that's such a drag is that it gives you the ability to navigate complexity. (laughs) And it gives us the ability to really begin to take a look at the complexity of our territory, our inner territory, our histrionic suffering, all of the suffering that we have around our histories as a person. And everybody's is totally different. Nobody can do that for you. Nobody can get in there and kind of go, oh, yeah, you, you, you're doing pretty good. So we kind of all have our own laboratory. We all have our own histories and our own suffering associated with that. We all have our own weird little selves. Do you have a self? A self? I have one. In one place when the Buddha talks about his practice and mindfulness practice and meditation practice, he talks about it as being a person who's skilled, who's good at a skill. And he makes the analogy of just like a skilled woodworker is able to shape a piece of wood, and just like a skilled fletcher is able to fashion an arrow, and just as a skilled farmer is able to plant and harvest a crop, so the meditator is able to tame and shape the self in a way that is not so much a not-self, we're not trying to get rid of the self, but we're trying to allow the self, ourselves, to flourish and to have the best version of that that might be available to us. And again, this equanimity or this, we can kind of get cold about this anatta business, like a not-self. Good luck getting rid of the self. So we have to kind of really come to terms with that in a very, in a very real way. And so as we kind of go from, somebody said this earlier in the interview that I thought was really um, important. Uh, somebody was talking about not trying to bring their life into the practice and sort of fix it and sort it out, but actually talking about taking what we do here, taking the wisdom and the compassion and the uh, the mindfulness and the kindness actually from here to their life or to the world. And I think that's really more likely what we're trying to do. We're not coming here trying to try to figure it all out. I tried that, man. I really don't recommend that you sit here and go, all right, let's just start at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) My mom and dad, that was just, that was no good. Spend a day. I did this on the three month retreat. I was like, I'm going to spend a day on elementary school, <laughs> spend a day on first grade. So, you know, I was just like, I, I swear to God, I spent days. And days. I'm like, I, if I, get, I just need to figure this out. I, I just got to go back to the beginning and start over. <laughs> no way, man. So, there's a, there, there, there is a, a taking it forward. How do we um, 
cultivate what's learned here or can be understood here. And so really the only two requirements to the practice or the path is A, that you start, and B, that you continue. That's about it, really. Everything else is just a big distraction from those two things. And oftentimes, uh, when the Buddha speaks of his Dharma, he says it's good in the beginning, the middle, and the end. Which I used to hear that all the time. I'm like, what are you talking about? Why is it good? I'm at the beginning in it, let me tell you. Not that good. You know, I was like, I feel like I have all this work to do. And it's good in the beginning because once you've started, it's already there. It's already you're recognizing something that's already here. It's not like you have to. The seed is essentially just as important as the fruit. And when he makes the analogy of the Eightfold Path, he says it's good in the beginning because it's good because right away we can just start having some more integrity in our life. Right? We can just be more kind. We can be more friendly. We can be more generous. Those aren't advanced skills. You don't need to sit 400 retreats to figure that one out. You just could like start tomorrow or something if you felt like it. It wouldn't be that hard of a thing to do. So it's just good right there. It's good in the middle because we start to see that when we change our relationship to harm and to having integrity, meditation practice is more easy, more at ease. In one place he talks about um, it's really hard to meditate after a long day of of killing and murdering and stealing and <laughs> burning people's houses down. It's like really hard to be at E at the end of the day. You're like, oh man, I can't believe I did that. <laughs> and we know that. We've heard some of that earlier today, right? Some of the stuff that we've done in the past that we don't feel good about, have you noticed it tends to show up in your meditation? Right, so we can kind of start cleaning that out. It's good in the end because we have the wisdom. And this is the thing that's maybe the rub is the wisdom that we're talking about in practice, it comes at the end. Maybe the seed of it comes at the beginning, but the fruition of really the understanding, it comes, it's a result. It's a resultant moment. But we, we so um, we so value in our culture this idea of wisdom. We want to know. We want to know so badly that we don't want to actually ask difficult questions. And the asking of the difficult questions is much of what we have to do in practice. And this kind of willingness to just really start at the beginning and be willing to be honest, really to be honest and transparent about our difficulties in our life. And just like, no more denial. What's really, really eating my lunch every day? And being willing to work with that, work with that seed and that fertilizer and that kind of oof. Being aware of the causes. What's the vortex? What's your favorite vortex to dive into? Stopping doing that. And then we get some confidence, we get some optimism, we get some samvega, some spiritual courage. To say, okay, this is, I've been at this for a little while, I think this is good, I think this is working, I'm going to keep at this. And then we just become more and more skilled in the removal. We become skilled, we become skilled. Things get easier, we get better. Our recognition of these things becomes more available to us and our ability to overcome those challenges becomes easier. And then this whole navigating complexity thing 
starts to become easier. We kind of get good at it. We get good at it in this field. This one once was a barren wasteland starts to have sustenance to it and our lives start to flourish in all these different ways in our the people we have relationships with and what we do for work and how we spend our time and how we feel about ourselves and how we feel about others and how we can contribute to the world in a meaningful way that's not driven by self-centeredness and what's in it for me and what's the world going to do for me. And we can kind of breathe out once in a while. as we have some time to practice tonight and a little bit more in the morning just allowing that idea or that question to arrive into your mind into your life into your territory what do you want to bring back how can you be a sort of a inspiration to somebody else and if you look and pay attention you'll find all these little opportunities like I said last night just like watching the, the Dharma in very strange ways, just like in people's faces at the airport. Like that always blows my mind. If I'm looking for it, I find these little moments in very strange and unusual places where you wouldn't suspect it. And being on the lookout for that, watching for that. So that's what I have for you this evening. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit for a minute. 